Hello, my name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So today we're going to go over a bit about uh, the basics behind uh, the way in which scholastic disputation used to work. And this is kind of a continuation of the video I think I posted two days ago, which was that account of a scholastic disputation from 1896. And that was really interesting to see some of the uh, ways in which they argued. And I decided to do some digging. And I found a lot of, uh, well, I found, I think, four guides to how this scholastic disputation would work, the categories used and everything, and kind of put some definitions to concepts that I had in my mind. So I did a synthesis of all these and wrote an article which, uh, in very uh, terse form, uh, went over them. So this video is going to be going over this article that I wrote in, uh, in explaining those various aspects. So I'm going to share my screen to that article and I'll put it in the description below if you just want to read yourself. I tried to keep it as clean cut as possible, but again, these are some, there's very difficult categories which are used. So it can be a bit difficult if, um, if you're not used to a lot of these categories. So as you can see, uh, those four sources. Oh, wait, before we continue, the thank you for reminding me article um, to get more articles, PDFs, videos, books, etc. Or to show your appreciation for my work, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash militant uh, A lot of you have been asking about um, my Pope Pius the 10th, Pope St. Pius the 10th videos, and uh, I will likely be um, posting one tomorrow, tonight, some, something like that. I'll try as hard as I can to get it done ASAP. But if you become a patron, then you could uh, help me um, work less in the uh, in the secular world so I can uh, do more things like that. I definitely have a lot of ideas for the future. And I think a lot of people are interested in um, in those type of things, going over the lives of uh, of cool saints. Um, and and people just people just like stuff like that. I've I've always enjoyed that and used when I was an Anglican and I used to preach sermons um, on a pretty regular basis. I would always use them as illustrations, or when I'd uh, catechize kids, I'd use the lives of saints as illustrations. So maybe maybe I'll do a break off sort of channel because I've always been interested in um, in storytelling in regard to history. So so maybe that'd be an interesting break off for me to have to. Uh, when I have the time to start a second channel that just literally just does that all the time is just me telling the uh, the stories of um, of our fathers in the faith. So that'd be cool. But uh, but for now, that's just all future for me. But um, it looks like uh, within the next few months, I should start to be able to uh, go part time at work, which will free up a lot of time. But uh, becoming a patron will help definitely help um, me be able to uh, transition to that. To, uh, to produce more content for you guys. Okay, so let us begin. Um, as you can see, very diverse sources. Um, Father John J. Tuhay, um, if I'm remembering correctly, he was a mid-20th century Jesuit. Um, John of St. Thomas, the, uh, the tract on signs, uh, that, that very important text. He was a post-Reformation um, Thomist. And then uh, William Joseph Braun, Brosnan, uh, Brosnan, 
He was a 19, late 19th century philosopher. And then uh, Thomas Gilby, he was a pretty famous um, mid-20th century Thomist who prepared the uh, so-called Gilby Summa, which was um, an edition of the Summa that he helped edit. And I think it's the same as the, uh, the Black Friars edition that he worked on that. So very, very uh, various uh, range of sources when it comes to how uh, these uh, concepts of scholastic disputation have been expressed all the way from John of St. Thomas, who was doing this on the on the daily to people like um, Father Tuhay and uh, Father Gilby. I guess I should have put Father Thomas Gilby OP. But uh, yeah, Father Gilby, he was they, they both were at kind of the tail end of when uh, this idea of scholastic disputation began to unfortunately die. But uh, we can we can revive it. Trust me, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll win. We will always win. St. Thomas will once again be commented on in the seminaries. Okay, so let's get into it. When engaging and proving a thesis, so that's that's the whole idea behind a scholastic disputation, is there's a certain question which is put forth, or uh, and then a thesis is put forth, or it's just a, just a thesis which is put forth if you read older manuals of theology. This is how it was done. They would just uh, put a thesis, and then um, they would prove the thesis um, through uh, arguments from authority, which would be sacred scripture and then the doctors of the church. And then they would also uh, make arguments from reason using analogies of proper proportionality to illustrate um, in, in the natural world these supernatural concepts. But after that, they would always bring forth uh, objections to the thesis that, that should be answered. And uh, this, in, in this, uh, I'm not going to go over that first part as much about how to prove a thesis uh, within scholastic disputation. This is more how to answer those objections to a thesis. And this can be very helpful with thinking through how to answer uh, modern objections we may have. And just having imbibed this method, uh, for example, I watched... Um, the debate that James White had on uh, justification with Roberts and Genis. And, and um, while I disagree with uh, Dr. St. Genis and uh, some of the positions and some of the positions and arguments that he has about justification, when listening through Dr. White's presentation and arguments against um, the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic view of justification and thinking through using these methods, it, it would have been very easy to dispel every single one of those arguments. And maybe to illustrate this and, and to apply it for you guys, maybe I'll go through uh, that section. And I think that'd be cool. And that would really help out. So I'm going to continue for ease of answering one ought to put the objection in the form of a syllogism. This is very important when you have objections Usually they're very disordered and uh, scattered, but when you're when you're th th going to argue against one of the objections, which is given by one of your opponents, a very uh, important practice and a very helpful practice is to take that objection and put it into a syllogism. 
to put it into an orderly way so you can kind of think through the way in which your opponent is reasoning to be able to one by one be able to answer each one of the propositions put forth to be able to think about whether the consequence is a valid or invalid consequence this that that is something which is a very important practice and uh I've I've began to uh, sort of think this way because I've been exposed uh, so much to this mode of argumentation. Very, very helpful practice. So now I'm going to basically go over what a syllogism is. So a syllogism has four parts, a major premise, a minor premise, a consequence, and a consequent. The major, minor, and consequent are labeled propositions, and the consequence and ilation. So propositions are said to have three parts. So thinking through the propositions in particular, which are going to be the major, minor, and cons and uh, and uh, consequent. So they have the three parts of a major term, a middle term, and a minor term. And I'll explain all of this obviously going forward. So the major term is the predicate of the consequent. So thinking through that example I give below, which is all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. The major term is going to be uh, mortal. That's going to be uh, what the major term is. The middle term is the term shared by the major and minor premise. And that's going to be man or men. And then the minor term is shared by the consequent. And that's going to be uh, is the subject of the consequent. And that is going to be Socrates. So uh, the major. So going back to our example, the major premise, all men are mortal. The minor premise, Socrates is a man. The consequence, therefore, and the consequent, Socrates is mortal. And this seems all uh, a bit theoretical and, and not too helpful at this moment. But once we get into thinking about how we reply to objections, you're going to see that all of these categories are very important when we think about it. So further, uh, these objections can take a second form, that of an ethememy. I've never heard this, anybody say this word in real life, so I'm just going to make up my own pronunciation. Uh, and that's gonna. This is actually much more important uh, than even a syllogism, because when we think about the way in which most people argue, most people argue uh, with hidden premises. Most people uh, have it in the form below. They don't. They don't think in in terms of a syllogism. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. What they will say is they'll say Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. That is the way in which they will argue, either the major premise or the minor premise. Usually the major premise is going to be uh, said to be hidden or um, assumed. So um, when we when we think through uh, the way in which an ethememy or the way in which uh, modern argumentation works, most of the time it, it comes with so many assumed premises. So it's very important when we argue against people that we understand that a lot of times they have assumed premises that you need to bring forth and answer the assumed premises, not just the given premises. And uh, that, that'll help a lot when thinking through argumentation. So as I said, the antecedent, um, the, oh wait, so this only has three parts rather than four parts, the antecedent, the consequent, and the consequence. So the consequence and consequent are the same as above, the consequence being the ergo or therefore, and the consequent is the conclusion. And then there's also the antecedent. And the antecedent takes pl the place of the major slash minor premise, which was given above. And um, one of them is said to be, quote, hidden or, quote, assumed. 
and um, in in the syllogism, in, in the um, ethemomy I give below. And I have no idea how to pronounce it. I'm sure somebody's going to troll me in the comments for for mispronouncing it. I don't I don't really care. Um, so in, in the uh, in the example below, the antecedent um, is the minor premise above. The major premise is what is hidden or assumed. That is the the hidden premise, um, improperly speak, uh, plainly speaking. So as above, the antecedent and consequent are labeled propositions, and the consequent in elation. Okay, so then the example. Antecedent, Socrates is a man. Consequence, therefore, consequent, Socrates is mortal. Okay, now that one has formed the objection in the form of a syllogism or the other thing. So once we once we take that objection that is uh, proposed against us and put it into a syllogism or a themomy, um, there must be two considerations. So we ought to consider the objection in a twofold manner with plenty of species below those genera or genuses or categories, however you want to think about it. So one may either treat the propositions or the elation. So those are the two general categories when it comes to defeating a certain objection. And most people actually, um, when you learn logic, uh, let's say in high school, the uh, absolutely horrendous education that they give you in logic, um, most of the time you're learning about defeating the ilation, the, uh, the consequence, the therefore, uh, because that is known as uh, an error or an invalid consequence is known as a logical fallacy. And uh, in, in that, uh, in, I don't know, uh, what, where do they teach? I think 11th grade is where I learned it. Uh, junior year of high school, when they teach you, they, they give you these lists of logical fallacies. But that is actually just uh, considering the consequence, which is very important. But it's not exactly teaching you how to object to the other parts of the syllogism, which is what um, scholastic disputation is really helpful on, is uh, thinking through the ways in which um, propositions work in relation to a certain um, consequent. So regarding the propositions, the response may be of three kinds. So we have these two categories, treating propositions and ilations. Those are um, those are two genera. And then when it comes to propositions, there are three species or there's three, um, I guess you could say subcategories because each one of these has categories, although I don't go into super lots of detail. So they may be of three kinds. First, uh, when treating one of these premises, the premise can be granted so you can affirm that the premise is true. So a good example that I give is that I'm arguing that Socrates is not mortal. So the argument is given, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. I would respond, I concede the antecedent, and then go on my way having lost the argument. So that would be affirming one of the premises. And you can, you can still affirm uh, some of the premises without, um, without uh, giving up the argument, because this happens all the time that you may affirm the uh, or concede. That's the technical language that's used. I can concede the minor premise but I can uh, reject the major premise and then therefore reject the conclusion. Or am I, I may even um, concede all of the premises. I may concede all of the propositions, but then the ilation, um, the consequence might be, might be faulty. So this, this is to be used. You huh, often concede uh, propositions. Um, so this isn't just, okay, uh, you automatically lost the argument if you concede one of the propositions. You have to be honest. 
And then second, the second uh, species of the genera of uh, propositions is going to be that you can deny the premise. So you can affirm the premise to be false. So uh, furthering the above example, let's say the syllogistic form of this argument is given. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. If I want to con continue the argument, I could say I deny the major premise. Um, that is, I deny the fact that all men are mortal. And I concede the minor premise. I concede that Socrates is a man, but I deny that all men are mortal, and thus continuing the argument. From here, the argument would shift to the debate over whether all men are mortal. But there is something clearer I can do, that is, I can distinguish. So in, in this case, uh, the, you really see the, the beauty of uh, scholastic disputation and the advantage. Because in this argument, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. I can, I can show you where I, I agree. I could show you where I disagree. So um, everybody agrees Socrates is a man. Okay, we, we all concede the minor premise. But let's say I wanted to uh, deny the major premise, all men are mortal. So uh, in denying the, the major premise, uh, let's say I deny um, mortal. Therefore, I deny the, um, the conclusion. And from then we can have a clearer understanding of the state of the question and a clearer understanding of where where the disagreement lies because now we're going to shift from arguing um uh socrates is mortal to arguing whether all men are mortal or not and then there we can uh continue to particularize the argument and continue to go on and then once we've once we've reached the end then um and let's say we finally five propositions, I mean, five uh, syllogisms down the line, we have finally proved that all men are mortal. Um, then, then now we can uh, we can go back to the original and say, okay, so this is a um, a justified syllogism. So now that we've all agreed, uh, therefore you can concede the major premise and concede the minor premise, and therefore concede the annihilation and conclusion. And now, now we're all agreed. So this is just the beauty of scholastic disputation is it, it cuts out a lot of the fluff. So then there's a third species, um, which I'm going to I'm going to uh, distinguish into five subspecies, four subspecies is this uh, can be used in four ways. So third, the premise can be distinguished. And this is this is really the, the bread and butter of scholastic disputation is being able to distinguish a premise. So that is affirmed to be doubtful or equivocal. It can be taken in more than one sense. So you deny it in one sense and you affirm it in another sense. And you see this is one of the cardinal sins that you have in, in a lot of modern theology and really um, just modern political argumentation, modern, modern whatever. The way in which moderns argue is that often what you'll have is in one of the premises they use in their arguments, they will uh, make uh, one of the terms equivocal or doubtful. So uh, in, if you deny the premise, then you look bad because um, it's obviously true. But if you affirm the premise, then, uh, th then basically they have just twisted the term into a sense that you're not affirming. Therefore, they affirm the conclusion, and therefore, it looks like you have to affirm the conclusion. It's just like um, in the in the abortion debate, the the debate over baby murder. What you what you'll have is you'll have people 
when they're arguing for abortion or for 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 a lot of issues or actually a better even a better example um uh, sodomites when they're arguing for their rights to sodomite quote marriage uh they will call it um uh, lgbtq rights they'll use this term rights and uh the implicit argument that they have is um to commit sodomy is a right therefore um I ought to be able to commit sodomy um, or, or something to that manner. But when it comes to this term rights, they are purely equivocating with that term rights because you're not going to want to deny somebody's rights like that. That would be that'd be a horrible move to deny somebody their their certain natural rights. But really what they mean by right is something completely different. They basically mean that I have the um, I have the complete uh, basically means autonomy uh, that doesn't uh, do physical damage or go against the inclination of somebody else's autonomy. That's what they mean by right. That is not what we mean by right at all. So um, when people would call say that they had the rights to sodomy, I would I would answer um, I could deny it. That would be true. But a more particular and a harder hitting um, response in order that that would uncover this equivocation that they have would just say if somebody had the proposition i have the right to sodomy i could say i distinguish um if by right you mean the autonomy uh that does not injure autonomous uh that does not physically injure actually it, it does but um the autonomy let, let's just take their uh their presuppositions i have the autonomy to do uh uh to be a sodomite, then uh, then I concede. But if you mean I have the natural right given by God, then I deny. So you're able to distinguish, and that's able to uh, clarify some of those underlying equivocations that they have on these various terms. It's the same with abortion, a lot of things. But let's uh, let's let's get into this a little bit deeper. So, um, third, the premise can be distinguished, denying it in one sense and affirming it in another sense. Then I have a general example down here. So, uh, furthering the ex above example, uh, a better way of continuing the argument in an orderly manner, I would employ a distinct, uh, distinction. And remember, the premise I denied would be that um, all men are mortal. So, I could say I distinguish the major premise, that is, all men are mortal. The body, I concede. The soul, I deny. So in distingu distinguishing this premise, I would concede the fact that all men are mortal according to the body, but I would deny that all men are mortal according to the soul. So the advantage from here is that at this point, the two may come to an agreement. So somebody may say like, oh, yeah, you're right. I, I didn't really think of that. The uh, immortality of the soul. I guess I, I guess I concede the argument in regard to this it, um, taken in this sense. Um, or uh, further objection can be given that is a more restricted in its application. That is, you could object to the thesis that Socrates is mortal merely according to the body. So they could um, they could object to the fact that the soul is immortal. And therefore, we, we've just jumped in another direction and we're able to um, continue the argument in an orderly manner. And this is just the, the beauty of scholastic disputation is an orderly manner, uh, good arguments, good responses. It, it doesn't have all the fluff of modern debate. We should have a presidential scholastic disputation. Imagine that Joe Biden and Trump 
just a uh, presidential scholastic disputation. So uh, a premise can be distinguished in four ways. So remember, I don't want you to forget the big picture. We're still over that genus of proposition. And then now we're in the uh, sort of subgenus of um, of distinguishing. And then under the subgenus of distinguishing, there's uh, four species of being able to do it. So first, uh, when the middle term may be taken in two senses. In this case, both the major and minor premise need to be distinguished. For, for this example, we may take the arg an argument against sacred scripture that I've actually heard before. So the argument is that Adam was told that he would surely die on that day. That is the day that he ate of the fruit. Adam did not die on that day. Therefore, a contradiction occurs. So here there's an equivocation that occurs with the term die. Therefore, I may respond. I distinguish the major premise. That is that Adam was told that he would surely die on that day. Um, spiritually die. I concede. Physically die. Did not, uh, physically die. I deny. And then firmer, for, uh, I promise I can speak further when we think of the minor premise, since this is the middle term, which is shared by both the major and the minor, minor premise, both of them need to be distinguished. So further, I contradistinguish. So I'll get in net a little bit of uh, what this term contradistinguish means. So further, I contradistinguish the minor premise. Physically die, I concede. Spiritually die, I deny. So more properly speaking, when there is an equivocation in the middle term of the minor premise, we are said to contradistinguish the minor premise. So this is just a species of distinguishing, but this honestly contradistinguish is the most powerful tool in the scholastics toolbox. Once you find out about contradistinguishing, you are you're just going to absolutely wreck all opposition. This is a very powerful tool. So uh, we are said to contradistinguish the minor premise, affirmed when combined with the major premise in one sense, yet denied when combined with the major premise in another sense. So you see, uh, this is kind of the bread and butter of, of bad argumentation right here is uh, actually it's a very powerful rhetorical tool. So it's sophistry, but it's still a, a, it's, it's a smart way of going about it. It's a convincing way of going about it, but it's it's not a reasonable way of going about it. So what you'll get is just like our uh, our uh, sodomite example, somebody in the uh, somebody will will take a term in a certain sense in the major premise. And then in the minor premise, they'll take it in a completely different sense and then use that to argue against you. So they'll, they'll kind of flip it back and forth. They'll they'll take uh, the sense that you deny in the major premise and then f then uh, use it in the sense you deny in the minor premise. And, they, and, they'll, and they'll just kind of just do that little switcheroo kind of. Uh, and, and it's very hard to if you're not trained to recognize this it's very hard to recognize but people do it all the time once you recognize it so what you do when you contradistinguish is to show that they are equivocating in that um in that middle term and this will become more clear with uh, with the example that i use so shifting to another argument let's consider an argument against the freedom of the will so um major premise predetermined acts are not free minor human acts are predetermined Therefore, human acts are not free. Here, the issue is found with the term predetermined in that it is equivocated in the two uses. So right here, predetermined acts are not free. The first predetermined and the second predetermined human acts are predetermined. These two are actually equivocated. 
this is this i'm telling you this is very hard to recognize you probably are looking at me like i'm crazy like what are you what are you talking about right here but actually these two terms are used in completely different senses very weird <laughs> they they are they're speaking about different things and you I, I know you're you're probably wondering how the heck i come to this conclusion but let's think about it um from from a uh, scholastic response how we would respond to this so to the major premise that is that predetermined acts are not free i would respond i distinguish the major premise predetermined by the secondary cause i concede by the first cause i deny so right here so let's think about predetermined acts are not free how what in what sense is predetermined being used here well, it's talking about the secondary cause. So um, if uh, God um, is said to predetermine everything, he has the first cause, does not remove the freedom of creatures. But when it comes to, let's say, um, I'm forcing somebody's hand to, I don't know, I'm forcing somebody's hand to uh, stab somebody, let's say. In, in that um, predetermination, that's, the, uh, that's a predetermination of secondary causality. So in this predetermination of secondary causality, or forcing, as, as we would say, that would make something not free. So let's, so, but there right here, taking this in the, uh, in the first sense of a primary cause, but this is completely denied. Um, uh so um you can see how how the uh the first equivocation is going to take place it's actually neither or if they could take it in the uh the, the first sense predetermined by secondary causality which would be conceded or they can talk about it in the um in the second sense which is by primary causality which would be denied so let me just gotta I'm on the back deck right now. So uh, let's think about the minor premise now. And this predetermined has to be taken in a completely different sense than the first predetermined, or the argument's not going to follow. Um, so to the minor premise, I would respond, I contradistinguish. So remember, contradistinguish is, uh, is when they're equivocating between the mi major and minor premise. I contradistinguish the minor premise. So predetermined by the first cause, I grant. By the second cause, I deny. So when we're thinking about the way in which human acts work, we in the way in which uh, they are said to be predetermined, we don't say that they're predetermined by secondary causality, like um, like our hands are being forced to uh, write a to stab somebody. We're not saying that human acts are predetermined in that sense. But we're saying uh, that human acts are predetermined after the manner of primary causality. So you see the equivocation is is pretty blatant right here. Um, so you see. So, yeah. So in this, the objector has made a fatal flaw in the major premise. The predetermination is by the first cause, God, whereas in the minor premise, he argues that the predetermination is by the second cause, which is denied. Thus, equivocation occurs. And I just realized that it is 6.02, so I'm supposed to be in a live stream right now. 
So I'm just actually going to do a part one and part two of this because we've already spent a half an hour. So uh, if you guys, uh, <laughs> I said a thought, I was going to be a jerk and make part two on <laughs> on Patreon, but I won't. I, I want you guys to be my patrons out of the goodness of your heart. So uh, I decided I won't be a jerk today. So I will see you guys later and look forward to part two. I'll just record it after um, after my, my sh- stream. So uh, you'll just have to wait a day.